Welcome, I am Huma Gupta, and this is Environment in Context, a podcast produced by the editors of the Jadalia Environment page. Today, we will be speaking with Leili Farudi, who is a journalist and has been based in Gabes and Tunis this year, about her current coverage of pressing environmental concerns across the country, from phosphate mining and processing to its effects, which include pollution, soil salinization, and water scarcity. Lely writes for The Times and Thomson Reuters. Welcome, Lely, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Huma, for the invitation. First, Lely, I think we have to address what happened yesterday when Tunisian Prime Minister Elias Fakfak resigned. His resignation is relevant to this episode because one of his key priorities was to increase Tunisia's phosphate production, which we're, of course, going to discuss in greater detail later. But as you know, his term has been challenged by protests in Sidens and Gafsa, where a lot of the phosphate mines are located, and the conflict of interest and corruption allegations against him that led to his resignation were also partially related to environmental issues, such as a public waste recycling contract worth $15.4 million that was granted to one of the companies that he was a shareholder in. Would you be willing to share your preliminary thoughts on this dramatic turn of events? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the Tunisian Prime Minister, Elis Fakfak, resigned. He'd been under investigation for conflict of interest due to shares he holds in companies, as you mentioned, including in waste recycling that benefited from state funds. So yesterday, two things happened. Inata filed a motion to withdraw confidence in Elis Fakfak after over over this conflict of interest. And then in the same day, Elis Fakfak demissioned after the president, Kaisaid, asked him to. So a lot, of, a lot of things happened. In doing so, it means now that uh, the president has the power to name the new prime minister, according to the constitution. If the first scenario happened, so if he was booted out of uh, his position by the parliament withdrawing confidence, then it would have been the parliament that put forward the new prime minister and not the president. So it was kind of this power struggle between presidency and the parliament, which is presided by Inata, the Islamist party. Um, so now in uh, now Kaisaid has one month to choose a new prime minister for a new government to be formed. And if that doesn't happen, if the MPs don't approve that government, then there will be new elections. So basically, I mean, this is the third government to fail since the elections uh, last last year. And so all of whatever uh, was a key priority, I mean, no decisions are being taken right now as the government is once again needing to form itself, get a, approval from a very divided parliament. Now that we've addressed the prime minister's resignation, I'd like to hear more about you and your journey. What has brought you to Tunisia? Can you tell us why you became a journalist and why you specifically decided to write about environmental issues and its effects on people there? Yeah, so I didn't I didn't study journalism, but after I finished my university studies, it seemed like a natural next step because it was a job that would allow me to in effect, continue studying. So I I like that I get to learn new things every day. I get to speak to people who who can share their experiences and their knowledge about the world. I moved to Tunisia in March last year. So I came here on a, a bursary with the Times of London, the newspaper. 
and um, to report on a broad range of topics. Uh, I was interested to come to Tunisia because, yeah, it interested me as this this place that was neither kind of complete chaos after the Arab uprisings in 2011, but it was also not this kind of perfect success story that was sold that it's often described as. So it was in, that sort of gray area was something that I thought would be interesting to look more into and, and find out more about. So yeah, as I mentioned, I moved here, I was writing on a, a broad range of topics and after a while started focusing more on the environment. Uh, I think partly because the effects of pollution and climate change on people and nature are so visible here, despite the fact that Tunisia is not a big contributor to greenhouse gases on a global scale. And yeah, I also think that environmental issues, approaches to nature tell us, yeah, tell us a lot about other issues, social, political, cultural, like, for example, the piece that I did looking into the illegal logging of oak trees in the north of Tunisia during the coronavirus pandemic was a story about the environment. This is a threat to the ecosystem, trees, other lungs of the earth, etc. But it's also a story about it's also a story about the social situation, about economic hardship of Tunisians at this time, access to resources. And yeah, I think the more that I dig into environmental stories, I think the the environment is also a very interesting topic to look into because there's such a yeah to decipher what is how are how are these monumental changes happening to to our world how are they provoked by these huge like climate change these huge things that are happening that are affecting everyone and which is of course provoked by human activity but then also how are other um how's other human activity like the way that agriculture is organized or the way that cities are planned like how is this also aggravating the situation of the environment in a place or how does inequality affect how people are affected by by environmental issues by by climate change the relative um, proportion of tunisia's actual contribution to greenhouse gas emissions versus the results or the effects of climate change that they are um, experiencing is really is really powerful and for me one of the things that really fascinates me in this larger story that you know you've been uncovering since last march is specifically the story of phosphates in the country and how it has been forcing me to think about the political economy of environmental transformation in the late 19th and early 20th century. I'm thinking, for instance, about how predatory loans from France to Tunisia in the 1860s and 1870s were a major contributing factor in Tunisia being forced to become a colonial protectorate in 1881. Just four years after becoming a protectorate in 1885, a French geologist, Philippe Thomas, quote unquote, discovers calcium phosphate deposits in Gafsa, which leads to the establishment of phosphate mining industries there. However, once the company or CPCFG for phosphate mining was established in 1896, the question then was, where will the labor come from? to run these mines. The importation of Algerian and French workers helps, but eventually the company embarks on a process of sedentarization of semi-nomadic and nomadic peoples in order to not only negate collective grazing and usufruct rights over land, but also to force them to settle, cultivate, and work in mining towns. 
Next, we have the question of transportation. So in 1899, railway lines are built from the interior regions like Gafsa to port cities like Sfax and eventually Gabiz, and this leads to the establishment of refineries and chemical plants in both places, with its concomitant problems of air and water pollution, not to mention the drying out of wells to support these industries that continues to the present day. Given the centrality of phosphate mining and exports in the social, economic, and political history of Tunisia in the past 120 years, can you tell us from your experiences of speaking with farmers, fishing communities, how do people living in Tunisia conceptualize and talk about phosphate and its environmental transformations? So if I think about, yeah, from the point of view of Gabez and talking to farmers and fishing communities, I think the awareness of pollution is uh, something very noticeable. Like it's, it's there in, I mean, you smell it in the air and it's also very present in everyday life and culture. People joke about it. Like with the coronavirus, people joke that they'll be fine because the virus is nothing compared to the pollution that they suffer. In the market, you hear a guy selling vegetables by saying, come to me, there's no pollution here. So yeah, it's kind of something that's very present in people's minds. I've only known Gabba's as it is now, but speaking to people, especially farmers and fishing communities, they talk about this kind of paradise lost. So that this industry has exhausted the region's water resources. The definition of an oasis is that it has a water source. One of the oasis towns in Gabba's Shinini actually means, the word means source but the natural sources of Gabas are completely dry now so I know it's kind of a, an assault on the identity of a place as well as its resources for fishermen it's the same in the Gulf of Gabas this used to be the best place for fish it's an important place for fish to, to reproduce as well and other fishermen from other regions would come and, and share in this they would say that you could go to the bay and there would be enough for you to like throw out your net and bring bring home enough fish for the day. Uh, whereas now it's much more complicated. People need to, um, fishermen need to travel further and further distances, sometimes hundreds of kilometers, which is a lot of petrol and so a lot of money to find fish. It's also causing conflict in, uh, with fishermen in other regions, like in the south and southeast, they're going to fish there. So there's kind of like a territorial issue. Speaking about pollution in Gabas, it's seen as this uh, part of a sort of historic marginalization of the region, maybe because while this industry was set up, which is having visible effects on health and air pollution, um, yet unemployment is still is still at 25%, which is higher than the, the national average. And there are other sectors that are suffering. So like, like agriculture, like tourism. People talk about tourism a lot, like this missed tourism opportunity, which I found, yeah, sort of surprising. People say that all of the tourism investment was given to the northern coastal cities that were historically favoured by Habib Bourguiba and the dictator that was suffered in 2011, Ben Ali, while Gabba's was destroyed. And so there's this kind of nostalgia around the hotels that used to be there and that are now closed or the, the, the places in the oasis that tourists used to come and, and take photos. And I mean, that was kind of interesting to me because I see tourism can also have equally really horrible effects on an area, kind of like the cultural, the, the commodification of tra traditions and environmentally the effects that mass all-inclusive tourism is having on Sous and Hamamet, these these touristic areas in Tunisia with big beachside hotels, which contribute to 
coastal erosion, also water shortages. That's, I mean, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what, you know, just from your own perspective or reading of the situation, why do you think tourism has this kind of exceptional place in the imaginations of people as not being a polluting industry, but rather something that speaks to the, the greatness of the country or its image, you know, in the world? Well, I think two things. I think one, it's a point of contrast with the coastal regions that have been that have been historically favoured by the government. So I think that that yeah, the the disparity um, in tourism kind of matches that disparity in the um, amount of investment that's been given to the region. And so I can imagine that that would mean that it gains traction as a um, as an idea and. Yeah, maybe it's a feeling of like, we have this treasure. It's nice that people want to come and come and see it. And then also it's relative to the pollution that's created by the phosphate industry. It's something that would, that would mean less pollution, but there would still be water. I think that the, the picture of happy tourists coming to take pictures in the place is nicer than tons of phosphorus ships and waste in the sea with like dead turtles on the on the beach which is destroying any chance of having tourism in the area and i and i think yeah another reason is if it's if someone is is talking about this in the context of arguing against the decision to set up the phosphate treatment plant then it's pointing to the lost to a lost opportunity so it kind of adds to that that argument just to bring us back to phosphate, the less romantic <laughs> polluter, the less romantic image of, you know, a polluting industry. For me, you know, one of the ironies of phosphate production is that it's used to produce fertilizer and increase agricultural productivity around the world. And yet, as you write about in your own work, the establishment of these chemical plants have actually exacerbated issues of water scarcity and soil salinization for Tunisian farmers. Can you talk to us about these two issues in greater detail? As I mentioned before, there used to be natural water sources in Gabas. There was a, a management system to distribute this water by closing off dams on certain days for use by parts of the oasis and later opening them to let the water flow downstream. So the oasis used to have this yeah, constant flow of water. It would be the oasis would get 750 liters of water per second. This was before the 1970s, whereas now it's 150 to 170 liters per second. And this is pumped water, not the water from the source, which means that farmers need to wait up to 50 days uh, in the summer. And they also need to pay. It's also water that they need to pay for around three to five Tunisian dinars, which is a dollar or a bit more per hour. On salinization, the water is naturally a bit salty in Gabas. But that is fine for the types of culture that is grown in Gabas. And that, well, it would be fine if there wasn't a water scarcity problem, because the problem is that oasis farming relies on the regular rinsing and draining of the soil to stop salt buildup. So given that they don't have water available when they need it to do the rinsing and the draining, it means that the salt that is naturally in the water builds up in the soil and has the effect of gathering around the roots of the plant and like strangling the, the plant. So this salt buildup I mean, can lead to someone abandoning their land, which then actually aggravates the problem because if one person allows their, leaves their land and allows it to become salty, it will affect the neighboring plots. So drainage used to be something that was a collective 
endeavor when most people were farmers, but that doesn't happen anymore. The natural salt levels in the water in Gabes currently are as they were before, but as water sources are continually depleted by the cement plants and the phosphate industry, there is a risk that the groundwater will become saltier due to seawater entering into the underground water resources. So this is something that's already happening in places like like Nebel in the north of Tunisia, where farmers are uprooting their orange trees because they can't they can no longer bear the amount of salt that is coming the, the level of salt that, that is in the water. Um, and they're replacing their trees actually with pomegranates, which, um, or other cultures that are more salt resistant pomegranates, which Gabbers is known for. I mean, we've taken a bit of time and we've spoken about uh, what's happening to um, fisher folk and farmers in Tunisia, but I'm also curious about what's happening in mining towns and with workers who are staffing these industries. So both in Gafsa and Sfax, from what you know, I've researched, there has been a consistent history of labor exploitation in mines and ports. This gave rise to a dual unionization movement in the 1920s between, on the one hand, French workers, who are not as interested in including Tunisian laborers in their socialist imagination, and on the other hand, Tunisian and Arab workers, who in response to this differential treatment, articulated a nationalist position in the early 20th century. Eventually, these efforts lead to the establishment of the Tunisian General Union, or or UGTT in 1946, what I find curious is how Gafsa and other mining towns continue to be central to massive strikes and protest movements following the intifa or opening or you know, you can say liberalization of the Tunisian economy in the 1970s or more recently in 2008 right before the 2011 revolution to demand more employment or higher wages. I understand that these protests continue till the present day. Uh, And even this year, there have been protests along these lines. However, it seems to me that workers have had more leverage organizing in towns that are entirely dependent on one industry because they can interrupt daily production and transportation lines. Whereas in places like Gabes, where the majority of the city is not employed in the chemical plant, the town's population, despite staging several protests, has had less leverage to negotiate and or shut down the facilities. In your experience, what kind of strategies have people in Gabes and other places adopted to deal with the environmental consequences? As you mentioned, there have been popular movements and mobilization against pollution in Gabba's local associations dedicated to the environment, especially since 2011. Starting just a few days after Ben Ali fled the country, the inhabitants of Shat Salam, the oasis town around 100 meters from the industrial zone, occupied the chemical plants. And, and yeah, so there has been a lot of mobilization that has attracted support from a lot of different generations, political groups, parts of society that have managed to come together on this issue. The local, the Ingabas, the local UGTT branch is also um, very on board with the pollution issue and and supported the decision to remove like very pollutant units of the plant and move them elsewhere, which is different to say Sfax, where the local UGTT opposed the movement to shut down the phosphate transformation plant there. So the Gabas Ujitete, they've organized protests against pollution. They've written statement in support of the popular protests. They organized a strike to demand for a university hospital to be built in the city. So there 
was a lot of popular mobilization with with support from various quarters and this led to a decision by the government in 2017 to remove to uh, dismantle the the plants to move the polluting units somewhere else further away from inhabitants but nothing has happened since so there's been no action there hasn't been a, a popular reaction like say in in Tatawin where over the last few weeks we've seen a the El Camor protests they're happening again. So this is a gas and oil producing region where movement for employment and investment has restarted due to promises that were made in also in 2017 that were not kept. So protests, protests have been out in the last few weeks. Today, there's a, a general strike starting as well to demand action be taken on these decisions. They walked to the Libyan border. There were the leader of the movement was arrested. There was a lot of, yeah, a lot of action taken to put pressure on the government to do something. But there hasn't been such a reaction in Gabas. I mean, this could be down to the lack of unity on on the demands. So it's not a simple, it's not a straightforward demand as asking for employment or for more for your region. So that's a very unifying demand. Like with this, there's questions about where are we going to move the plants? Like if we are going to move it to another place, the inhabitants of that place are not against receiving the plant, then there's also the Yujdete wants to make sure that the plant doesn't go too far, that it's then not within the region of Gabas. Yeah, one activist that I spoke to said that in Gabas, while people know about pollution and are very affected by it, there isn't the same urgency because daily life continues. So it is more of a a long-term problem that requires a long-term vision compared to a very straightforward and urgent demand that is affecting an individual like employment and needing needing a job and asking for work. Thank you, Lily. Now I, I'm kind of, I want to talk about the larger picture macroeconomically and politically in terms of phosphate's relationship with the Tunisian economy. So prior to 2011, Tunisia was the fifth largest exporter of phosphates in the world, and it comprised about 3% of their GDP. Tunisia produced about 8.2 million tons of phosphate in 2010. However, production began to drop following the revolution in 2011 and was around 3.8 million tons last year in 2019. Production is expected to be around 4.5 million tons this year. And I'm curious that given this drop after 2011, has the revolution mapped onto a shift in the discourse of environmental politics? And if so, how? So to my understanding, the drop in phosphate production was down to instability protesters blocking the production, demanding jobs, etc., not due to any environmental consideration. As you as you mentioned, until yesterday, Prime Minister Elias Fakhbar, he wanted to increase Tunisia's phosphate production. So that wasn't that wasn't down to environmental concerns. And in terms of trying to improve the facilities and in order to install filters or look into recycling waste, phosphate ships and waste from the phosphate industry, that also hasn't been much action on that front. On a political level, the environmental question, it seems absent. It was almost completely absent from the 
election campaigns last year and um, like in all of the debates it was like Tunisia had its first uh, televised debates and all these debates for the presidential and for the legislatives the environment barely got a mention yeah there are problems with management the question of water is dealt with primarily by the agricultural ministry which has a compromised position seeing as 80% of Tunisia's water is used in agriculture meanwhile I mean a headline environmental decision, for example, that was taken recently was the banning of plastic bags, which is superficial. It's not a transformational decision. And then if we're going to talk about waste, the management of waste is in such a crisis that there's improvised rubbish dumps like leaking into the main water dam in the north of the country. Recently, I was looking into this figure that existed before before the revolution. He was the environmental mascot. His name is Labib. He's a, based on Fennec, which is this desert fox with very big ears. And so he was, there were, there were loads of adverts on TV and his campaign was all about getting people to, to pick up rubbish and to keep their environment clean, which is this, yeah, quite surface level approach to the environment, which these improving the environment as being one just about cleaning up and two that it's down to the individual to to clean up. Yes, it seems like these are the easy fixes and of course displace the agency of environmental pollution onto the individual in a very kind of typical neoliberal fashion uh, with recycling campaigns, etc. When in fact household consumption, whether it's the United States or in Tunisia, is you know, by far not the largest producer of pollution or carbon emissions, but unfortunately, it's always <laughs> put on the forefront to make us as individuals feel guilty <laughs> about what's happening in the world without addressing these structural issues. But, you know, speaking of other structural issues, I'm thinking about the question of international trade. Because of Tunisia's historic relationship with France, for instance. We usually think about the EU or France as the major trade partner that has a stake in the Tunisian phosphate industry. But I was surprised to learn that, in fact, India is one of the largest buyers of phosphate rock and phosphoric acid from Tunisia. And India is also one of the major consumers of phosphate-based fertilizers. However, even though India has been importing phosphate since the 1950s, I came to find out in the course of doing research that in 2006, the two countries developed a joint venture with a long-term purchasing agreement called Tunisian Indian Fertilizers, or TIFR, whereby a plant was established in Skhira, which is 50 kilometers north of Gabiz, to process 1.4 million tons of phosphate rock and export 360,000 tons of phosphoric acid to two Indian companies in Andhra Pradesh and Gujarat. While this project was delayed and did not take off until 2013, India now accounts for 50% of Tunisian phosphoric acid exports. I think it's important to kind of think about Indian-Tunisian relationships because we have to, I think, account for a different sort of international political economy that is happening in the world where by we're not always looking to Western countries or European countries and thinking, well, they are the sole consumers or the sole pressure points for certain kinds of environmental pollutants. And while China gets a lot of coverage, you know, vis-a-vis China's its influence in South Asia, in, in, in Africa, I think this to me was very interesting, the, the Indian relationship with Tunisia that is historic and continues to grow, creating 
essentially a trade relationship that demands that phosphate be produced at greater levels in the future, which is interesting because the I think the aid that is coming for environmental cleanup, for instance, is coming from the European Union to GABIS. Correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm not sure if India has taken any responsibility or has thought about the environmental impacts of phosphate production in Tunisia. So can you actually talk to us about the local environmental impacts of this plant in Sghira and how people are responding to the environmental pollution that is caused by this plant? Yeah, I think that it is interesting to think about, yeah, whose responsibility is it to to think about environmental issues? And I haven't spent time in Sghira. I've spoken to people. I'm told that Tifert is a newer facility that has their filters are better than, say, the the filters at the treatment plant in Gebes. So they so air pollution is minimized. Also, it's not as close to an inhabited area. And the phosphogypsum waste is stocked in a land um, on land instead of being dumped in the sea. But there is still used water that is drained into the sea, which local activists say that there hasn't been enough testing to, to see what is the effect of this water, um, which has been used to treat chemicals and so could have an effect on the, on the marine life. And there are also, I mean, there are accidents. I saw horrific videos from an acid leak uh, two years ago. And again, this is told by activists, Tifa constantly pays fines to the Tunisian government instead of updating their facility to stop um, accidents, violations happening in the first place. That said, speaking to, to fishermen in, in Gabas, they say that there is more to catch in Sghira. So over half of fishermen from the village of Ghanoush in Gabas, they would go to Sghira in like December, January, February to fish for octopus and, and cuttlefish, something that they would have previously been able to, to get closer to home. It's, I, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and it's something that I definitely want to find out more on. Yeah, thank you for the question. I mean, we've spoken so much about phosphates today that I am beginning to think that it is impossible to have an environmental imagination of Tunisia beyond phosphates. But I'm curious, actually, whether in your experience in political or public discourse or, you know, the civil society sphere in the country, is there any talk about a future for Tunisia beyond phosphates, beyond that being a central industry. I don't just mean ameliorating the polluting effects, but really a structural reimagination of the country's economy beyond extractive industries and agribusiness. I'm thinking, for instance, of the land struggles in Jemna as a hopeful example of food and land sovereignty. Or are there other examples that, you know, you've come across that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, so though they are not in power, there are voices and initiatives that are trying to reimagine the country's economy. For example, this weekend in July, there is a collection of civil society and researchers who are coming together to discuss a Green New Deal for Tunisia and what that would mean for access to land, for biodiversity, for international conventions on agriculture, for climate change. So it is a conversation that's happening. I'm very interested to see where that goes. And 
yeah, on a small scale, Gemna can be seen as a as an example of this site of resistance to the agribusiness extractive industry. They struggled. They gained control of land that they had been dispossessed of by the French and then the state. Now that land, the 185 hectares, is managed by an association and people are in charge of of their own their own land, their own their own produce, investing the profit in local projects. So that's a positive example. The legal status of Gemna is still unsettled, but a ruling, yes, to be seen, a ruling in favour of the locals could open the way for those dispossessed in in other parts of Tunisia. I'm actually uh, curious, is Green New Deal the actual phrase that that is used? It is Green New Deal, like in America. Wow, that's that's fascinating to me, the transplantation of the Green New Deal, which is, of course, a reference to a very particular, you know, moment in American history where we have the New Deal, that that has somehow become a transnational or international call for action of reimagining the political economy of a country going forward. That's that's just fascinating to me that 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 concept is being used around the world. Yeah, let's see where it goes. Leili Faroudi is a journalist, and we reached her today in Tunis. For more information on her work, you can go to her website, leilifaroudi.com. We also welcome your ideas. If you have ideas about programming or you want to contribute to the Jadalia Environment page, please email us at environmentatjadalia.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time. You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at Paola at statushour.com To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. <laughs>